In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we're looking at the story of Uzziah. If you remember the last time we came together, we were talking about Uzziah and the 52-year reign that he had in the, the city of Jerusalem as he reigned over Judah. If you have your cheat sheet with you, you can see that Uriah is the, uh, the king on the left-hand side under the tribe of Judah symbol, which is the lion. And you see that Uriah is there. And we're halfway through where we are going to be studying the kings. But tonight we're going to be shifting gears and we're not just going to keep focusing on a king, but we're actually going to dab, dab deeply into one of the, what the theologians and commentaries call a major prophet. And I'm going to tell you that we're not going to be in Second Chronicles. I know you're saying we're supposed to be studying Second Kings, but I want to let you know that Second Kings is an aerial view. Like you're in a helicopter and you're looking over the land. You're surveying the land. And then Second Chronicles means that you're at eye level. You're walking around around on the land you were just surveying. So tonight when we go into Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 6, if you'll turn there, and when you're looking at Isaiah, what you're actually doing is not just surveying the land, but you're looking up at the helicopter that you were surveying the land from. So as you turn to Isaiah chapter number 6, this is the story of when God called the prophet Isaiah. And it happens right at the time when Uzziah has died. If you remember the last time we were together, we spoke about Uzziah. Uzziah being the king over Judah. And at this point, Judah has exploded into a golden age. Everybody is profitable. Everybody is prosperous. Everybody is doing well. But prosperity does not equal holiness. I will let you know at this time in the northern region known as Israel that there was a king named Jeroboam II. They also had a huge boom as well. That prosperity is abounding in the northern and the southern regions of what used to be called a unified Israel, which is Israel in the north and Judah in the south. At this point, the one who led, the he was the spearhead of it all because God blessed him. The last time we were together, we spoke about how God had blessed Uzziah that God's hand was on him even though he came as a boy king into the throne room and was seated on the throne. God's hand was heavy upon him. He was an inventor. He was someone who boosted the economy. He caused the borders of the nation to expand. He actually uh, subdued Edom once again. If you remember, Edom was a rebel country outside of Israel and Judah that had risen up his hand and rebelled against the kings there. But as we look in Isaiah chapter number 6, at this point, Isaiah is at a funeral. Isaiah is there. And I want you to imagine you're at the funeral yourself. And across the front of the funeral, uh, of, the, of the procession, is the casket that's laying there. Uh, at that time, they did not have caskets. They would literally lay out the body and have a funeral and weep over that person, the head of state that had died. If you remember earlier this year, there was a queen, Queen of England. She had passed away. And before that, we had a couple of popes die. And if you remember in your mind's eye from watching the news or looking at the news on the television or on your, on your phone, you can remember them laying in state. They were laying there as they were uh, open, open viewing. At this point, that's what I want you to imagine, that the king is laying there and all the, all the nation is mourning. For 52 years, this king has reigned there in Judah. He has kept everything stable. He, if you remember, as we remember as we studied in 2 Kings, there had been a new king every once in a while. But at this point, he had been on the throne for 52 years. Everything was strong and solid. The walls and the borders were secure. The economy was booming. But now people were nervous. People were scared because it seems like there's a huge transition. So imagine being there, a part of the subject, part of the king's court. You are weeping because there Uzziah is dead. Our friend Isaiah is there as well. And this is the calling that Isaiah received at the funeral, the day, the year, whenever Uzziah died. If you look with me in Isaiah chapter number 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. I want to let you know that when Uzziah was there, 
At the funeral, when he's there paying respects to the monarch who had been in place for 52 years, reality starts to melt. I don't, I don't really believe that you, our friend Isaiah was in the Holy of Holies because if you, uh, a cross-reference would be Revelation chapter number 4 whenever John was called up to the heavens. He was there in the heavens. But here he says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. That all the reality melts around him and God pulls back the veil. Even though all the future and all everything that was hinged on this king is laying in the casket. He's laying in state. He's there and the the nation is weeping. We notice that the king is dead. He saw the Lord seated upon the throne. Now there'll be a transition from one king to another. As we have been studying and you got your cheat sheet, you can see how many kings have come along. We've seen kings get assassinated. We've seen new kings placed. We've seen one king lasted 24 hours. We've seen this king last 52 years. But you'll notice that Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6 verse number 1, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. He he now understands that even though the king is dead, all our hopes and security is there, that the Uzziah is dead, that the Lord is still seated on the throne. This is, this is uh, ringing in your ears here tonight. That you need to understand that your hope is not found in princes and in kings and diplomats and those who are in the Oval Office and the Senate. Your hope is not found in, in a denomination or a pastor or a preacher. If just for a moment you can catch a glimpse of the throne room of God, it will change you forever. Because it certainly has changed Isaiah at this point. Isaiah is called into ministry in chapter number 6. But you might say, what about the first five chapters? I want to let you know that this is initially when Isaiah was called to do what God called him to do. In fact, if you go back and read 1 through 5, you'll notice that he's giving proclamations to Judah and Israel and even the surrounding nations. However, it changed him to such a point that he revisited it, he revisits it in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 6. He goes back and re- remembers the call. He remembers when he saw the Lord high, seated up on a throne. He says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now in monarch times, in biblical times, if you are a king of a domain, they would know how powerful you are as a king by your train of your robe. If you were like Solomon, you would have a beautiful train. Now you might say, what does that mean? Are they driving a choo-choo train? No, no. Uh, to help you understand, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've done a couple of weddings. So that you'll notice that when the bride comes down the aisle, there'll be an attendant. That there'll be a, a bridesmaid who would help make sure the train is perfectly straight as she walks down the aisle to meet her groom. This is the image I want you to have of a king. As he's seated on his throne, if he were to uh, descend his throne, come down from his throne, his robe would follow behind him. And more powerful the king, the more strength the king has, the longer his robe would be. So we see that the king Uzziah is dead. Isaiah sees, however, the hope of not just Israel and Judah, but the hope of all of creation high and seated on the throne. And he says that his train of his robe filled the temple. That the glory of the earth is not even enough. I want to let you know that the earth is His display case. And the earth is filled with His glory. It's just that we refuse to see it. That all of creation cries out, holy is He. He is immaculate in His creation. He's wondrous and grand and He's overwhelming. But we ignore it. But here we see Isaiah's eyes are open. And he sees that the temple is filled with the fringes and the edges of His robe. That it fills and we get lost in the folds of His robe. He tells us here, it filled the temple. That's a... That's a mighty big God. By no means is Riverside a very big church. It's pretty big for me. It's overwhelming to me for the ones that God has given me. But I want you to imagine if the, the, the temple was just this size, the robe would fill the temple. That just the edges of His garment fills it with His glory. By no means can the earth hold all His glory because He's bigger than the earth. He's bigger than the cosmos. He will not be stuffed in our universe. He just pulls back the curtain for Isaiah and shows him that He is a God seated high above. Notice the wording, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He's high, high and lifted up. That means that He's above everything that is ailing you. 
We're walking around at eye level. We see our troubles at eye level. And those mountains look mighty big. Those valleys look really deep. The burdens seem very heavy because we're only looking at it at eye level. We hear the doctor's report. We hear about our friends and family who are falling and drifting away from God. We see the the hardships of our world and the things that are going on in this world and we see them at eye level. However, Isaiah's eyes are lifted up and he sees the Lord high and lifted up that He's above it all. Not that he's in a place where he's so high up that he's not concerned because his robe fills the temple. I want to let you know, even though he's high and lifted up, it's not that he's so far that he can't reach you and you can't reach him. It's that he's above it all. So why don't you carry your worries, carry your burdens to the one who's high and lifted up? Yes, yes, we do well to go to the pew, go to shoulder to shoulder with people and share our concerns with each other. But we do better when we take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the one who's high above all the problems. The one who reigns over all. This is just pinpointing that He is sovereign. That's a $10 word that means He's in charge of everything. He's high and lifted up. And His robe fills the temple. It's symbolic to tell you how much His majesty and how much wonder is surrounding by Him. That He is great and mighty. He's the Lord of hosts. The King of angel armies. He's above any and everything. His robe fills the temple as Isaiah sees. And above Him in verse number 2 stood the seraphim. Seraphim in the original comes from the phrase, uh, the burning ones. That the seraphim are these same angels that we read about in Ezekiel chapter number 1. That they were the wings who had a wheel within a wheel. They're the same angels that we read about in Revelation. He is actually, he's actually getting a peek into, he's getting a peek into glory, into the throne room of God. And these seraphim each had six wings. With two they covered their face. And with two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. They, they're showing us how they worship. For they were in the presence of the Most High God. And they covered their heads. And they covered their feet. They're showing that He's superior and He reigns over them. So they cover their head because they can't even look on His glory. They covered their feet because even God told uh, Moses at the burning bush, the ground that you stand on is holy ground, so tread lightly. Remember this text when you walk into church on Sundays and Wednesdays. This is holy ground, not more holy than what's out there. It's just that you're, you're more aware that God is God and He reigns. He's high and lifted up above all problems, all principalities, all demons and everything that goes bump in the dark. He's Lord over cancer, sickness, and every king that raises His head. He reigns. And we should not tread in very flippant, walking in with a dance or even jolly. That we should be aware of the allness, awesomeness of who God is. For even the angels cover their feet And they cover their head. And with two they fly. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. These seraphim are talking to each other as they're ministering to the Lord. They're speaking to each other. They're not talking to Him. They're testifying. They're worshiping and making much of Him. Church, we should bow our heads in shame because these seraphim were not redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Yet they esteem Him holy. Even though they're burning ones and they're a symbol of His purity and His righteousness, they can't sing like we do. But we stroll in here on Sundays and Wednesdays with a humdrum attitude. Well, I better go to church and see what he's going to yell about tonight. I, better, I might as well go check in, get that box checked off. My, my, I might stop by and see how everybody's doing. These angels speak to each other. They say, He's holy, holy, holy. And why do they say it thrice time? 
because He's our Holy Trinity. He's not love, 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 even though He is full of love. His number one attribute is He is holy, otherworldly. He's not like His creation. That's the problem. He is holy, 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 and we are not, not, not. Do you not see the chasm between us and Him? We can never reach Him. If He were to pull back the curtain, we would come undone like Isaiah did in this text. For He is holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, that's Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh. He is holy above all things, pure and righteous. He loves with a holy love. He gives with a holy giving. He forgives with a holy forgiving. All is, all is dictating on His holiness that He is holy. And the whole earth is full of His glory. When you leave tonight, I know it might start to be twilight. It might start to be a little dark. It might be hard to see His creation. Cut your beams on light and just let them shed as far as you can. Look over the fields on your way home. Look at the trees, how they reach up to His glory. If you're able, and if it's not too cloudy, look up to the sky where He placed the stars by the, the fingertips that He placed there and the moon that He hung there. The earth is full of His glory. You can tell a man, hey, you need to be in church, you need to be reading your Bible. Well, I can go into woods and be closer to God than I am in the church or in, or in my Bible. Yes, the world shows the glory of God. Absolutely. You can climb a deer stand and be close to God, so you say. But as you look at creation, it tells His majesty and how wonderful He is. However, the Bible will tell you about salvation. How to know Him personally. You can know about Him from His glory and from creation. But you know Him personally by studying your Bible under a Bible-believing church, under the anointed preaching sent by God. The whole earth is full of His glory. In verse 4, in the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called out, and the house was filled with smoke. The one who called out, the, the seraphim, they're the ones who were saying, holy, holy, holy. And they rang out and they shook the thresholds of the building. Sunday mornings, Danny has to beg some of us to sing, to hum, to even open your hymnals and say anything to the Lord of hosts. And these seraphim have not been redeemed. Maybe my question is to you is, have you even been redeemed? If you had been, you would outsing the burning ones in all of glory. For you can sing a song they will never know. My Redeemer lives. Though my sins were like scarlet, now they're, they're white as snow. He says that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Why was the house filled with smoke? Well, if you know anything, and I'm sure you do, congregation, as we study the Old Testament temple, the tabernacle, when the, when the high priest would go in, he would burn incense, he would swing incense to fill the room with smoke. Why? It was a holy incense. What it did is cover the stench of his flesh. That when God smelled the burning incense, it was a sweet savor to his nostrils. And now the incense fills the place that our friend Isaiah is in. That way, that way he can meet him in the smoke. In verse 5, And I said, Woe! Woe is me! For I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of Lord, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, I'm ruined. I'm falling apart. Notice he didn't come to church to feel good. To have the pastors and the deacons and the elders pinch his cheeks and say how special he is, how cute he is, and you just you just keep sinning. It don't matter. God loves sin. No, he he he's abhorred by sin. And he is holy. When you truly have an encounter with God, it ruins you. 
You cannot sit in your sin and encounter God. You fall apart. Now I have, I've got t-shirts at my house that are 20 plus years old. Older than my kids. And they're just used to it. Sherry's used to it. I just wear a t-shirt walking around the house because I'm doing stuff. And if you pull one piece of the thread just right, it will fall apart. This is what Isaiah is saying. I've come apart at the seams because I've glimpsed God in His holiness. There's nothing else like Him. He has blown my mind. He's shown me how wretched and dirty I am. Peter even said this in the holy moment when he saw Jesus there. And he says, depart from me for I'm an unclean man. Run away from me, Jesus. Depart from me. Isaiah is echoing that same sentiment. Or really Peter's echoing because Isaiah's first. Isaiah says, I am undone. Woe for me for I am lost. Your holiness repels me. Your goodness I can't obtain that goodness. I'm not shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm not equal with you. You're high and lifted up. And I am a wretch is what Isaiah says. I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. He's saying I talk dirty. I say wicked things because my heart is dirty. He's saying this is just the fruit. My lips is just the things I say. But my heart is stony. It's dead inside. So God, me and you can't coexist. I'm ruined. A lot of people will say the same thing on Judgment Day when it's too late. It's better to say it now. Recognize your sin before a holy God. Recognize that He will not cohabitate with your sin. He will not... Simply share the throne with your favorite passion or desire. He will not simply allow sin to reign in your life and He takes second seat or the co-pilot seat. He will not be just an accessory to your life. He is Lord of all or not at all. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Not only am I dirty, but everybody I know is dirty. Not only do I say vile things because I'm vile, but everybody I know who's vile, even the very best that Isaiah knew. The king now dead, all his hopes and dreams, the economy, everything was based on that dead corpse laying there at the state, open, open, uh, open funeral. And he says, I- I'm dirty, I'm vile, and everybody around me is. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What a blessing for Isaiah. What do you mean what a blessing for Isaiah? It's a blessing that he got to see the Lord of hosts. It's a blessing for he understood and understands who God is and who He is. Our church would do well to know who God is. That He's high and lifted up above any and everything. Above, above every governor, king, diplomat, every ambassador, above every slave, every, every trash man, every, every plumber, and every uh, roofer, whatever. He's reigning over corporations. He reigns over any and everything. And realize who we are. In light of it all, we're not even a blip in history. Yes, we are attracted to sermons that say, hey, you're special and you're important. Hey, you're cutesy-wootsy. There's even churches in Goldsboro. They're, they're phrases for people who don't like church. There's, that's, the, that's the phrase of their church. If you don't like church, you're not going to like heaven. And you don't like God's pride. And you don't like God. That's how that works. But Isaiah says, I, I, I see who I am. I see who you are. And I'm ruined. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a blessing for Isaiah to actually see God and see himself in the light of who God is. How many of you have you ever dusted in your house with the shades closed? You dust them around. Oh, I'm getting everything. But then you pull the shades back. You say, oh, I missed a whole lot. That's a weak analogy to help you understand if there's no fire coming from the pulpit and there's no fire in your life and you don't see God for who He is, you're just dusting in the dark. I'm just dusting. I'm doing pretty good. 
No, no, they don't get a lot of amens and sermons like this. That He's holy, 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 and we are not, not, not. That He is high and lifted up. You mean I'm not high and lifted up? You mean the world don't revolve around me? You, don't, you think that the choir don't sing my favorite songs? The preacher don't use my favorite text? He don't preach from Second Opinions chapter 4? That this church ain't for me? That, that's about Him. That He is high and lifted up. And you are ruined. Because He says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If He's the Lord of hosts, what that means is that He's the the general of angel armies. He's above everything. Elohim, that He is above it all. Adonai means He's the the pinnacle of all. He is God. He holds all things together by the power of His Word, as you remember in Colossians. Then verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. I want to remind you that the altar is the place where Jesus laid Himself down to die for sinners like us. He is the atonement. He is the one who is the... He is the, uh, the appeasement of God's wrath for sinners. Only because of Jesus. Yes, we have the law of Moses, but the law of Moses is not a ladder to climb into heaven. It's a mirror to show us how deformed and how wretched we are that we need a Savior outside ourselves. But in this instance, I want to tell you that He brings the burning coal not in form of salvation because God does not reveal Himself to sinners unless He's bringing them to salvation. At this point, Isaiah is a prophet. He's being called for a special commission to speak to the people of Judah. But he's, he's dirty. So God is qualifying him. And what He'll do is burn him. God always breaks something before He uses it. Always. That's just that's what He does. For we know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when He did communion. He said, take this cup and drink it. But when He took the bread, He broke it. And He passed it out. He always breaks stuff before He uses it. He has to break us because we're too proud and too haughty. And we think that we're high and lifted up. And He breaks us down into the dust. Puts us in our place every time. Here Isaiah is broken He's ruined and now he's about to be burned. He takes from the burning altar a coal with tongs. In verse 7, and he touched my mouth. He blisters his mouth. Well, preacher, he don't say that. Okay, let's take a hot coal and put it in your mouth. What's going to happen? Blisters. He's going to burn you. Here, the angel touches his mouth. From the fruit all the way down to the root, it commissions him and gets him ready for what God has called him to do. In verse 7, he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The only way your sin is atoned for is the work of Jesus Christ. Repentance does not feel good. Nobody wants to freely give up their sin. But only through the power and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator between man and God, does the power of sin have no power over us anymore. When we have received Jesus and Jesus has received us and we've repented and trusted in Him, when we sin from that moment on, that's us deciding that that's better than having Jesus. Remember that when your favorite sin comes around knocking on the door. That gossip, that bitterness, unforgiveness. That comparison yourself to other people, the coveting, the anger, the murderous heart, dishonoring the Sabbath day, blaspheming His holy name. Your favorite idols that pop up here and there, that you are realizing those are idols and I'm going to smash them and put God on the throne in my life. Remember that. That repentance is not fun. It's not supposed to be fun. Something has to die. Either it will be you or them. Two enter and one leave. Somebody's going to walk out of here with a toe tag. They're not walking. They're being dragged. It's either going to be me or my sin. I have to put sin down. It has to die because Jesus reigns. And that's the only way I can defeat sin is through the work of Jesus Christ. Not through a program. Not going through 12 steps and just discipline. That will not work. You need to be born again like Jesus said in John chapter number 3. You must be born again. He says he touched 
touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for? Have you been blistered in such a way that there's been a mark placed on you by God? Because of the marks of Jesus Christ, now there's a mark on you that He has sealed you, that you are His. And you speak differently. Your heart is different. He has commissioned you to go. Because that's what He does in verse number 8. God plucked Isaiah out from the crowd. Why Isaiah? I don't know. Why did He pluck you out? I don't know. But the one who's high and lifted up, seated on the throne, can make those decisions. We don't get to. We don't get to walk around and say who's saved and who's not. He does. For He is God. He's above it all. He created everything. He's the Lord of creation and He's the Lord of salvation. Do you understand what I mean? He created everything. He saves whoever He wants. Do you understand that? Maybe you don't like that. Maybe you're angry about that. Well, hang on, you'll get madder. In verse number 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? You might think in verse 8 that this voice of the Lord is talking to the seraphim. But it's not. Because who will I send? And then you'll notice He says, Us, the triune God. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit is there. And the Father is there in this text. It's not a strong, strong text for the Trinity, but we know that there's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says, who will I send and who will go for us? For those who wonder why God created everything, who created Adam and Eve and all the little animals and the chickens and the weasels and all those things, the horses and the crocodiles... It was not that God was lonely because God could talk to Himself. He's triune. He's, he's God by Himself. He don't need any. He's not dependent on us whatsoever. We're dependent upon Him. He's self-sustaining, all-powerful, all-knowing. So He doesn't need us. So the next time you see or hear a pastor say, well, God created man Adam and Eve because He was lonely. He won't lonely. So what was the point? Why did God create Adam and Eve? For His glory. For His glory. All for His glory. (laughs) That's another sermon. But He says, Who will I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. I don't think, I know Isaiah at this point doesn't really know what God's going to send me to do. Nobody would volunteer for this. Because if you know the story of Isaiah, what he preached, it was not received. He preached to empty rooms. He was beat up. He was thrown in prison. People hated him. But he said, here I am, send me. Here I am. The one you blistered, send me. The one that's come undone. I have glimpsed who you are. Even though what he has to do is hard, Even though it's overwhelming. Even though the populace will hate him. He's got a glimpse of God. So all this stuff is second hand now. The things that you worry about. The things that stress you out. That really weigh on you. Hurt you. Break you. That make you walk in valleys. That really really grind your gears. Hurt you and grind you to a halt. If you could just get a glimpse of him. And His majesty, the Lord of hosts, high and lifted up. Uh, And His robe fills the temple with all power and might and wonder. Who reigns over everything. Everything else will melt. None None of this matters. Then you'll say, here I am. Send me. I I know this is looking impossible. I know what you're going to call me to do. I I know that they're not going to receive me. I know the family's not going to like what I say. I know I'll lose friends. I know that I won't be popular. I know I'll be censored. I know that I might lose my life, my property, and, and all my rights. I know, but here I am, send me. Because I've seen something better than what this world has to offer. You're better than comfort. You're better than being heralded and lifted up and considered wise and considered important. You're better than anything else that I could ever try to obtain. Here I am. Send me. 
In verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, Listen how wonderful the sermon is. If you got the newest Bible, it says, Go say every day's a Friday. Go say you're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity. Go tell my people that they'll never face any adversity and affliction. Go tell them that they'll never be hurt or broken. Go tell them that it'll be burritos and unicorns and Skittles. Whatever your favorite candy is. It's just raining that. Whatever. No. He says, go say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Least they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is not the kind of sermon you want to preach when you're being commissioned by God. You might even say, well, why would God do this? Tell Isaiah to go blind them and stuff their ears up. Make them confused. Did you know Jesus preached the same way? For those who don't know, whenever Jesus taught a parable, what He was doing is hiding the truth. He didn't teach a parable to reveal the truth. I will give you an example. Jesus quoted this in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to turn there, you can, but I've got a lot of verses, so we're going to move quickly. In Matthew chapter 13, 14 through 16, if you don't get all these, come see me and I'll make sure you get them written down. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 14 through 16, Jesus is speaking. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but not understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart have grown dull, and their ears can barely hear. And their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will hear them. And Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. He's speaking to His disciples, but He's not just talking to them. He's talking to you here tonight, believer. I got you more in Mark chapter 4, verse 12. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. That they may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they turn and be forgiven. It's almost like God doesn't want her to be forgiven. Remind you who he's talking to. That Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah, and these people have denied him. They have forsaken him. They worship the Baals and the Asherahs and Moloch burning their children on the altar. But everything's prosperous. Who needs God at this point? We don't need him. Look how good everything's going. They're walking around with fat wallets and driving nice cars dressed to the nines. They're looking good. They're prosperous. They're healthy and strong. Who needs God? In Luke chapter 8 verse 10, He said to you, It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. This is Jesus speaking. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. We're talking about two different things here. Isaiah is speaking to a hard-hearted people. And his job is to make sure they're sealed in their hardness. But Jesus is quoting Isaiah as he's walking around preaching to them in parables. To the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people of His day who would just not believe that He is God even though He's done miraculous works. No one has ever done the things that Jesus has done. Right. It's like they won't believe because they can't. And they can't believe because they won't. You understand that circular reason but it makes all the sense in the world. They won't believe Jesus is God because they can't. And they can't because they won't. You won't quit anything that you don't want to quit. You won't do anything that you don't want to do. Does that make sense? In John chapter 12 verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. At least they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. 
They run from Him and He gives them over to their sin. Do you understand? What Romans tells us that He would just turn you over to your sin. In Acts chapter 28, verse 26 to 27. Go to this people and say, You have indeed heard here, but you will never understand. You will indeed, indeed see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart have grown dull, and their ears can barely hear. Their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In Romans chapter 11, verse 8, that is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this day. You're probably good and mad at this point. I can't believe God would just give up on people. No, the people gave up on Him. You know the people have given up on Him. They will not serve Him. Even the earth is full of His glory. They won't serve Him because they can't and they can't because they won't. That don't sound fair. I thought Jesus came to die for the whole world. The world is the cosmos used in that context in the Hebrew. In John 3.16 it means those that are His elect. Those that believe in Him shall not die. Those that trust in Him, that's the ones that will not perish. Those we're not universalists. Not everybody's going to heaven. Everybody agrees with that. We know that. So who did He die for? His people. When Jesus went to the cross, like the song refers to, I was on His mind. He had my name on His lips and on His heart. He went to die for my sins. He didn't come to die to make us better. He didn't come to die to make us Worthy to be saved. He came to die for sinners. And that's it. His elect. His people. Jesus died for His people only. Amen. What about the rest? He simply leaves them alone. Turns them over. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. Because if He was speaking the outright truth, the degree of hell and eternity and suffering that they will face would be so much more if He didn't lead it and lead those who would not believe in Him. If He just gave them flat out truth, they're rebelling against the Holy Spirit because that's the unforgivable sin. Don't you understand? It's not not tithing. The unforgivable sin is not holding a grudge for a decade. The unforgivable sin is not being gay. Unforgivable sin is not skipping church and go to the coast. The unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit and denying who Christ is. You will not be forgiven of that. Amen. But you'll be judged on the degree that you heard the gospel preached to you. And I fear for the ones here at the river because I do my best to make it plain and simple. Put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Put the sizzle on the steak so you'll understand crystal clear who Christ is. But there are those even in our congregation who won't believe because they can't. And they can't because they won't. That don't seem fair. Who does he think he is to do something like this? The door should be open for everyone. Well, I invite you if you want to turn there. Because you're probably really good and mad. Romans chapter 9, 14-24. In Romans chapter 9, 14-24, Paul asked the same questions that we ask. If I was born a sinner, why is God mad at me? In Romans chapter 9, verse 14 through 24, What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. When you preach like this, you don't walk around cocky. Saying, yeah boy, I turned myself around. I got my life right. It was Him who had compassion on you. It's Him who had mercy on you, O wretched sinner. It was God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertation, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Moses, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, He has mercy on whom He wills, and He hardens who He wills. I can't believe this is in here, you might say. But there it is. It's been there your whole life. You say to me, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? I know we're free will Baptist, but His will is stronger. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonored use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What is it saying? That He has mercy on who He wants. He'll turn over whoever He wants to wrath. That should cause you to shudder. That should humble you greatly. Especially if He has redeemed you and saved you. It was not your working. It was not your bringing yourself to church. It was Him drawing you. It was Him plucking you. It was Him saving you. If God did not move and did not save, if He did not pull back the veil and rip the veil and allow us into the Holy Holy through Jesus Christ, heaven would be empty and hell would be full. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, Then He said to me, This is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is a wondrous thing. It's it's glorious that God has done this, that He has saved anybody. Maybe this might upset you and say, well, who, who has He saved and who has He not saved? Who has He predestined? Who has He elected? Who has He snatched from hell? Who has He redeemed? I, I don't know. But my job is to preach the undulterated truth exactly how He's written it. And let Him call. Let Him redeem. But there's some whose ears are stuffed up because they got la 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 la. la. I don't want to hear what you're saying. Because you're calling me to repentance to make Him Lord of my life. I don't want to see what you're showing me. So I'm plucking out my eyes and even closing them tight so I don't see or hear. They won't come to Jesus because they can't and they can't because they won't. This is what Isaiah has been called to do, to go preach and teach there in Judah. Nobody would sign up for this. To do the impossible. If God told Isaiah to stand in a graveyard like He did Ezekiel and take a handkerchief and stand over the graves and preach the gospel, Isaiah would be there and preach the gospel to the graveyard until the bones rose up and lived. Because only God could do that. Yes, there's church programs that tell us how to revitalize a church. There's books that's been written, the autopsy of a dead church. Yes, we can get uh, uh, smoke machines and lasers and guitars and just get loud drums and put coffee in the hall, in the foyer and, and do fun events with our kids every weekend and gather a crowd. But only God can change the hearts of men and women and children. Only God can redeem. Only God can breathe on them that the dry dead bones come to life. He is the master of creation and salvation. He redeems. He saves. He alone is God. High and lifted up. And the train of His robe fills this temple. He reigns. He reigns. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, God Almighty. He tells him back in Isaiah once again, how long do I do this in verse 11? How long do I preach this? That their ears are dull and they're blind. And he said, until the cities lie in waste without inhabitants and the houses are without people. 
and the land is desolate. God's wrath will rain down on this prosperous nation of Jerusalem and Judah. He will wipe them out. We don't need God. (laughs) We're doing pretty good. I mean, Christmas is coming up. I mean, I'm planning on having it all out this year. Christmas is coming. Oh, in the new year, my portfolio is doing well. Oh, man, I cannot wait for the elections. And now my candidate's going to get in. And I'm, who needs God? Verse 12, And the Lord removes the people far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He says in verse 10, 11, and 12, I want you to preach this until I level the place. Because I am. Priests of their eyes are blinded and their ears are stuffed and their hearts are cold and calloused. God is intending on destroying them even in their prosperity. There are people right now who are prosperous that God's wrath is on them right now. And He's simply turning them over to their sins. But there's hope in verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a tabereth or an oak whose stump remains when it's failed. The holy seed is a stump. He's saying in verse 13, even though I will decimate Jerusalem and Judah, I will wipe out the kings, I will wipe out the princes and all the prosperity. It will all be gone. There will be a remnant. There will be those that I I keep and I save. There will be those that there's hope because of Him. To call back to the first cross reference, when Jesus was talking about, when He says, least they hear and and they see and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. Is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. If you didn't catch this part, you missed it all. He said, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For the ones who understand that He's God and He's high and lifted up and the repentance is hard. But He gives the strength to repent. He gives the strength to walk away from the sins that held you bound. He gives a a door to the prisoner. He sets the captive free. Blessed are you because He has not forsaken you. Whoever you are. Whoever you are, if you can hear the Lord of hosts, the kind shepherd Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit prodding you heart towards righteousness and holiness, blessed are you. Blessed are you who thirst and hunger for righteousness. You're like a tree planted beside still waters. You produce your fruit in due season. Blessed are you for those who pursue God and Search for righteousness and long for His presence. Fear the Lord with fear and trembling. Blessed are you that He has not turned you over to your sins and simply just sealed you for destruction. Blessed are you for He has opened up heaven's gates through the work of Jesus Christ. There's a trail of blood that leads to the cross and it leads to glory. And just continue to follow the trail. Continue to follow Jesus. Continue to serve Him. Because it's His hand that has saved you. Let's bow our heads and pray.